Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. POTUS time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it is Thursday, July 13th, 2023. Give you an idea uh, what's uh, in the headlines right now, literally right now. This story is just breaking. Probably not even going to have anything remotely, <laughs> uh, conversation, anything remotely to do with it, but kind of. Uh, but just to let you know what's in the, the news, TV and movie actors vote for biggest walkout in four decades. Ladies and gentlemen, this is no joke. The labor movement uh, is taking Hollywood by storm. This, the screenwriters have been on, on strike oh, for, I forget how long, uh, over two months, well over two months. I think it's like uh, 70 days. Uh, and uh, Fran Drescher, who is an actress and the president of SAG-AFTRA, uh, announced that 160,000 TV and movie actors will go on strike at midnight and joining them. And there's a clip uh, in the New York Times on the homepage of Fran Drescher. You remember her from The Nanny? Ladies and gentlemen, she's an actress on The Nanny. Man, she is a badass with a capital B. Uh, and um, my shout-outs to her. She's standing up for the actors, and I'm just speaking from my heart. See, people, oh, Ben, Tom Cruise, Denzel Washington, uh, you know, Paul Newman, they're all, mil- oh, Paul Newman, I had to go back in time for that one. They're all gazillionaires. What do you care about them? I go, well, there's a lot of working actors who are getting abused and exploited, and the conversation actually does connect to the conversation I'm about to have in many ways, because I was just reading another story uh, in the New York Times t- before I went on the air about how the 19-year-olds who've signed with the NBA, they're like 19 or 20, and they're uh, just really feeling good about themselves. They're like seeing themselves as businesses, as commodities, as an entire entertainment packages, and they're already getting uh, production deals together. And God bless them, man. I'm not hating on them at all. I love them. I support them. I'm a little envious, okay? <laughs> they don't have deals like that for podcasters, <laughs> but whatever. God bless every single one of you. But it just didn't happen that way for NBA players. There's a lot of old-timers. It wasn't like that for them. And similarly for the superstar actors, there's just a lot of working actors who 
are easily exploited, particularly now, uh, where a, a handful of conglomerates are just controlling the streaming industry. Uh, and so actors and writers are getting together uh, to band together in a union uh, and demand they get a fair share. So my shout out to, to all of them. I'm with you 100%. And Fran Drescher, you are a badass with a capital B. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself uh, so we can begin the conversation. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Teresa Runstedler. I am an associate professor of history and critical race, gender, and culture studies at American University. And actually, this connects directly to what you were talking about before. I was a member of ACTRA, which is the Canadian version of SAG-AFTRA, um, way back in the day when I was a performer in the late 90s. So I, you know, connect both worlds. <laughs> Wow. I did not know that when I went on that riff. I I, I, I just chose it. I always begin, uh, Teresa, I begin every uh, podcast interview like this that drops on the weekends with just a sense of what's in the news. Because you know, like people listen to podcasts a year later. They know, well, what's in the news when you interviewed Teresa? And so that was in the news. I did not know about your, your connection. Do you know Drake by any chance? Oh, you know what? When I was teaching at the University at Buffalo many years ago, my students asked me that because they knew I was from Ontario. And I said, I'm a little yeah. bit older than Drake. So, you know, I never actually came across him um, during my time. So, you know. <laughs> I just, I, I know, I just wondered that because, um, yeah, Toronto, but also, I don't know you're that much older than Drake. Whatever, it doesn't matter. All right, neither here nor there, because uh, he was, uh, he started off as an actor uh, in Canada as well. All right, uh, so uh, Teresa is the author of a new book. I don't know how new it is. I think it's 2023 called Black Ball, and I'm um, showing her uh, the book. And and this book, it would be like, I'm just going to say this, Teresa, it's like you wrote this book for me, even though you didn't, you never even heard of me uh, until I emailed you. But I mean, I'm a diehard basketball fan. I love my Chicago Bulls. As you can see, I'm wearing a Bulls hat. Uh, I love them to death. I've been a Bulls fan since they started. Uh, and uh, my my glory days were in the 70s. And so the Bulls teams with Chet Walker, Norm Van Leer, Jerry Sloan, Bob Love, these are the teams, my beloved Bulls teams. Uh, but I also know that uh, the Bulls management in those days was not very progressive. I'm just speaking euphemistically about how they treated Bulls. And my dear friend, may he rest in peace, Norm Van Leer, um, took a strong stand several times on behalf of players, uh, got slapped around a little bit. And um, I don't think the Bulls ever made right with Norm uh, on this front. And definitely they have never made right with Chet Walker. Uh, and so the whole notion of basketball in those early days, Teresa, when it was transitioning from a white-dominated sport to a black-dominated sport, and white people are really having to treat black people as equals, that struggle, that mental struggle, that's like in my brain constantly. And you wrote a book about it. I'm like, oh my goodness, black ball. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood of the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. I, I, I checked it out at a liar. I saw it on the shelf, checked it out, came home, read it in like a day, and then emailed you. I said, you got to come on my show. And here you are. So thank you for writing it. 
and I'm done with that long-winded introduction. I'm going to ask you now to explain how it was in the world uh, that a woman of your generation would look back uh, to the 70s and write this book. So take it away. So I've been writing about sport for a long time. Uh, back when it wasn't really sexy for historians to write about sport, my first book was about Jack Johnson, the first ever Black World Heavyweight Champion. And I always saw sport as this really critical space in American culture where people talked openly and still do talk openly about racial differences, about questions of class, about questions of labor, um, often in ways that they wouldn't in other forums, maybe the political sphere, uh, where people try to, you know, maintain a certain level of uh, uh, respectability. Um, but in sports, it's almost as if we feel released from our inhibitions to talk openly about politics um, through the players, through the, the various personalities and competition between the athletes. Um, I actually came to Black Ball specifically through a project that I started many years ago where I was looking at Len Bias, uh, another name that I'm sure folks who followed basketball in the 1980s are familiar with. 1986, he was the star of uh, the University of Maryland College Park basketball team, got drafted by the Boston Celtics, uh, was slated to be an amazing superstar in the NBA, but then shortly thereafter died of cocaine intoxication. And one of the things that struck me about that story was the fact that immediately uh, or almost immediately, the conversation went to how do we control young Black men and their propensity for using drugs? Uh, there were rumors about the fact that he had used crack cocaine, which was not the case at all. Um, he became this infamous figure in Ronald Reagan's push uh, for uh, the Anti-Drug Act, which, you know, was increasingly punitive, all about policing and about policing young Black men in, uh, quote-unquote, inner-city areas. So I wanted to make sense of that moment. So, like a good historian, I went back in time, and I thought, what, what would happen if I did a little searching in the press at that time and saw what the conversation was like concerning black basketball players and cocaine or drugs or, you know, drug arrests. So I literally typed in NBA and cocaine. And wouldn't you know it, all of these articles just popped up in my screen in this, you know, historical database. Um, and I was struck by the fact that all of these articles, I would say, geez, like 97% of them were about Black players getting stopped or, uh, you know, being searched for drugs in apartments that they were in. Um, and often they wouldn't even get convicted of anything. Uh, because the quantities were so small that they, you know, weren't even, um, you know, major offenses or the, the, the chain of custody in getting the drugs was so off that the prosecutors didn't want to touch the case. 
But what struck me was the fact that blackness and criminality and drug use became fused in the figure of the black ball player of the 1970s. And of course, you know, being from that era, you probably remember Chris Cobbs's infamous piece from 1980 in the Los Angeles Times, where he uh, did this expose about uh, player use of cocaine, estimating anywhere between 40 to 75 percent of players in the NBA were using cocaine. And of course, by that time, the league was about 75 percent black. So the racial implications of that kind of statistic uh, you know, were baked into the article itself. Um, and I, you know, being the skeptic that I am, just wanted to tease out, was this really a crisis? Now, of course, a lot of the guys were doing cocaine, Let's, but who was it who had a little bit of disposable income <laughs> in the late 70s and early 80s? Who wasn't doing cocaine? Um, but for me, the interesting part of that story was why did they get singled out for this moral panic? And that sort of led me into um, rabbit holes about, uh, you know, the labor struggles in the early part of the decade and what fan reaction and what uh, media reaction was to the changing style of the game that black players were bringing into the league throughout the decade. And so, you know, that's a really long-winded way of telling you how I came to this. But for me, it was just about using sport and the NBA in particular as a window onto these larger developments in U.S. society with racial integration and also, ironically, increasing criminalization of particularly young Black men. Wow. Uh, all right. So there's a lot to follow up on there. And uh, I'll start with the um, what, uh, something you said. Why did they get signaled out uh, for this moral panic? And I'll, I'll be, let me just say, I'm with Teresa. Uh, I don't think cocaine use is healthy for you. I'm not advocating cocaine use. I personally, trust me, have never tried cocaine. I was more to reefer head back in the day, as everybody who listens to this show knows. Uh, and I still see nothing wrong with reefer. But that's just me speaking, not Teresa. Uh, I do well, know. and that that was the that was the drug of choice for most NBA players. Actually, it was marijuana. Marijuana. Um, but the thing yeah, about yeah, and they cocaine, were very open about that. The thing about cocaine, as a guy who was around in the 70s and early 80s, Teresa, I could tell you so many white people were doing it, okay? so And they would go about, they would do it, and then go to their lives. They had jobs, all kinds of jobs, lawyers, stockbrokers, traders, you know what I'm saying? And it was no, like, it was not like viewed as like a moral stigmatization it wasn't like they have violated some grandiose moral code but when a, a a black nba player got caught with oh well this is serious you're sending a message to the rest of the country so what's going on here psychologically racially in your humble opinion what's going on here when they're signal out uh for this quote-unquote moral panic well i think that you know 
Black players became emblematic of the urban crisis in the late 70s. So, uh, you know, a lot of people associated the game of basketball and the way that it shifted from, you know, a traditional quote unquote, white college men's game into more of black uh, streetball style with the slam dunks, the aerial play, um, you know, the, the trick passes, the creative ball handling, all of those things that we associate with black playground play, which incidentally was a slur um, and was talked about widely in the press as being something that showed, again, the moral failing of these Black players for not being refined enough, for not being coachable, for being selfish, for not being team players. And so that kind of connection to these other issues that were happening in society with the decline of, you know, the urban cores of um, you know, major cities like Chicago, where you had massive white flight happening, of course, subsidized by the federal government. Um, you know, deindustrialization that was moving jobs away from those urban centers. Um, and also for, you know, wider society, of course, African Americans were the hardest hit. It was also a time of, of, economic crisis, particularly in, um, you know, from 1973 on with the oil shocks, um, you know, and stagflation. And so white folks for the first time in a long time weren't making more money, weren't becoming more prosperous, but actually felt a stagnation of their lifestyles. And this happened at the very same moment that black basketball players started earning more and more and more money. Um, and they still had these associations to, you know, all of the black pathology associated with, um, you know, the quote unquote inner city. So people thought that we were, they were undeserving of the fame that they had, that they were undeserving of the kind of wealth that they could generate through playing a game as opposed to, you know, being a hardworking American. So all of those, you know, I think mythologies about race, about class, about um, violence, about criminality, all came together in a perfect storm. And NBA players became almost like the lightning rod for those wider discussions about American racial politics at the time. And how did you think the, uh, the corporate titans, uh, speaking euphemistically, who owned the NBA teams, or owned or controlled the uh, networks that broadcast the NBA, how do you think they were dealing with this conflict between white America's fears or resentments or envy uh, toward the uh, black players who were becoming wealthier as the decade wore on? They were worried, straight up worried, in the sense that Okay, so, I mean, I have to back up a little bit and talk a little bit about the emergence of the ABA in uh, 1967, because this is definitely a part of the story. Um, so the American Basketball Association was a rival league to the NBA, and it, you know, it was challenging the NBA for the first time in decades 
uh, for talent, for fans. And so, you know, there was this competition to, uh, or this race to find the best talent possible. And so one of the things that you see happen was the game got blacker because they had to go to new sources of talent. They were going to places that they had never looked for talent before, whether it be the Eastern League or, uh, you know, HBCUs or other places where they could find talented Black players that weren't under the spell of of the NBA at that point. Um, And so that really kind of opened the door to the blackening of the league, so to speak, But this was also happening at the very same time that that competition that was created by uh, the establishment of the ABA was also helping players to have some leverage in their demands for better contracts, higher salaries, better terms of their contracts. Um, And it also empowered them to do things like lodge antitrust suits in the early 1970s. So it really sort of gave the players an increasing amount of power at the very same time that the league was worried that there was a growing mismatch between the race of who they imagined their fan base was, which was predominantly white Americans, white men, um, and, and, and who the players were you know, young black men um, who were really feeling their power for the first time. So I think one of the things that happens is not just worry, but also an effort to maintain control. And so, you know, all the struggles that I talk about in the early 70s, all the way throughout the 70s are really about this struggle between team owners, management, league officials, and the players over what is this, what is the future of the sport going to look like? Okay. So I'm going to trot out my theory uh, about this and then get your, then you respond and feel free to vehemently disagree with my theory if you do so. Okay. It's free, it's free country in this show. Uh, you have first amendment rights. So it's not unlike what I began the show with, with Fran Dressler and the actors and the screenwriters right now trying to force the Googles of the world, the Amazons of the world, the Facebooks of the world, who are more and more controlling uh, media in this country uh, to, to guarantee them their piece of the pie. What you're talking about in the 60s and the 70s with basketball players is that basketball players were beginning to make uh, demands for a greater piece of the pie. And the owners, all of whom in those days were white, uh, didn't want to give them a greater piece of the pie. And so in my humble opinion, white owners were more than happy to exploit the um, envy, the hate, the jealousy that ordinary white people in America had toward black players, exploit those attitudes and use them as a tool to keep black players, or any player, that matter, but particularly black players, because 75% of the league was black, from getting a bigger piece of the pie. So they were willing to use racism to preserve their control of the money. That's my opinion of what was going on. Your reaction. 
I 100% agree. Um, One of the things that I started to find in the sources at that time was just how how much triangulation there was between the team owners, the imagined fans, right? So we're not talking about Black fans, even though, of course, there were Black fans. (laughs) There were, you know, other non-white fans who were cheering on the NBA, but we're talking about white fans and then the white-dominated media. And they all sort of were speaking the same talking points. And often uh, the white sports media, particularly the mainstream white sports media, progressive media actually had some really interesting um, takes um, that were much more in line with what the black press was saying. But mainstream media was almost like a megaphone for the owners, Um, And then the fans would then write in and basically say, yeah, we agree. These players are just greedy. They're selfish. They're lazy. And all of that tapped into these longstanding stereotypes about African-Americans more generally. And so the irony, and I was trying to unpack this, especially with respect to, you know, uh, the crisis about violence on the court and the the drug crisis in the latter part of the 1970s. Why was it that the NBA was so quick to kind of throw people under the bus, so to speak, and to publicly flog them, you know, in the case, I mean, metaphorically speaking, right? Um, Somebody like Kermit Washington in 1977. And again, not to say that that punch was vicious, but on the other hand, for me, the interesting part of it was how did he then become emblematic and be used as a scapegoat by the NBA to say, hey, fans, and in particular, this is the the dog whistle to white fans, we have control over these unruly players. So don't worry, it, you know, African-Americans more generally and the rest of society are demanding all of these things. But don't worry, in basketball, we've got it under control. And we're going to, you know, in in a sense, make the league great again. We're going to return it back to this nostalgic point when all of your, you know, fabled stars from the 50s and the early 60s were, you know, the height of athleticism and uh, stardom in the NBA. So, yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head. And, and by the NBA taking this stance, ironically, they sowed the seeds of their own backlash um, or public backlash against the league, which, of course, then had to be, uh, you know, recovered and <laughs> and the the image had to be fixed um, by the time you get to the the early 80s with somebody like David Stern. All right, we'll get into David Stern uh, in a little bit. And let's just go back to Kermit Washington. At you, you read my mind, uh, and I was just about to bring him up when you talk about violence, and just to help people out a little bit, because uh, I know most of my listeners have no idea who Kermit Washington is. Um, Kermit Washington was a forward, I think it was the Lakers at the time, and they were playing the Houston Rockets. I'm doing this from memory. Although the, the, the chapter, you have a whole chapter on Kermit Washington in a book, so it's, that's why it's fresh in my memory. Uh, and there was a fight on the court. Uh, Rudy Tomjanovich, who was a white player for the Houston Rockets, was running uh, to the fight. 
uh, and Kermit Washington felt the presence of somebody coming from behind him. This is how it's been recounted time and time again, Teresa. And he just turned and threw the punch as he turned. And uh, Rudy Tomdanovich literally walked into a very hard thrown punch. It broke his nose. It gave him a concussion. It uh, really screwed up. It broke his jaw, I want to say. He was out for months. He sued the league. Uh, And Kermit Washington was turned into and folks i lived through this so i remember it like public enemy number one if you could take the worst stereotypes that people have of black street criminals and put a face on it that's what they did to kermit washington um Man, I'd love for you to riff on this uh, and and go in a little deeper. And you, I got to give you credit for this, Teresa, because you put in your book a distinction that to this day I hear, and that is when it's white players in hockey dropping the gloves and going at it. Well, that's the game. <laughs> that's what makes this game so exciting. <laughs> I'm not condoning violence, people. I don't like it, but when players in the NBA do it, my God, society is crumbling right in front of us. <laughs> Why isn't society crumbling when two white guys start fighting in hockey, but everything we know about society is dying right now when it's two black guys in the NBA? Teresa, the floor is yours. I mean, I'm Canadian, so <laughs> I grew up watching the NHL and you know, uh, I'm thinking back to all those broadcasts with Don Cherry. I, I don't know if your listeners would know who he is, but a huge person in Canada, uh, very much an advocate of fighting on the court because that's what real men do. And so I think, you know, in the context of sport and in particular in the 1970s, again, remember all of these connections between black violence and the the supposed decline of American cities and that black people's pathologies were responsible for that. Two black guys fighting evoked all of those other issues in society two white hockey players fighting, oh, well, we're all going to get a little bit of that manhood that they're exercising by fighting each other, you know, and that this shows that white men are still red, you know, red-blooded American men or Canadian men. Um, So it had a completely different valence for the public. Um, I mean, the biggest irony for me when I was doing the research for that chapter was that, you know, basketball wasn't really being played on TV uh, a ton at that time, you know, so a game could often happen and, you know, most people in the country wouldn't know that so-and-so punch so-and-so, you know, in this game, games were being played on tape delay. Uh, You know, teams really catered to more of a regional market, except for the most popular uh, big market cities. And so, and Kermit Washington himself at that time, who incidentally was a graduate of American University, there's another connection, um, was very, you know, 
respectable in the sense of, you know, he was he was known for being a good student. You know, he was known for being like one of the good ones. But this just totally changed his um, his image in the public eye. Um, And he remembered thinking, what the heck just happened? Because, you know, in the early days of his career, he remembered that, you know, Nobody ever remembered who was punching whom, and the fines were like maybe $500, and you may or may not be ejected from the game. So when we're talking about the size of the fine that was put on him and the the length of the suspension, it was completely unprecedented. And, you know, part of me looking at that hockey comparison was to figure out, like, what is this double standard that's going on here? And why did the NBA feel like it needed to clamp down, you know, uh, so punitively on Kermit Washington? Yeah, I uh, and I like to point out that to this day in hockey, if you get into a fight, you'll probably, I don't know, what is it, five minutes, you have to sit in the penalty box. So for folks who don't follow hockey, yeah, they have this little box you have to sit in, and you don't get to skate for five minutes or so. Then you get to go out. In basketball, if you have a fight, you're immediately kicked out of the game, and then there's an issue of whether you're suspended, how many games should be suspended in the aftermath. And then uh, if you come off the bench to participate in a fight, you're automatically suspended. Personally, Teresa, I like what the NBA does better than what the NHL does. The NHL essentially is trying, is glorifying fighting in order to make more money. Uh, And NBA is trying to limit fighting in order to make more money. Uh, (laughs) They're all trying to make money. Uh, But it is, it continues, Teresa, it continues to this day, this double standard. And I think it's just because white people are, you're right, they're what, they're afraid when black people fight, or maybe the black guy will fight a white guy like Kermit Washington and uh, Rudy. Uh, whereas, oh, or maybe they'll start fighting the fans, which happened with the malice at the palace, right? That's like the ultimate um, transgression is to then, you know, start mixing it up with the fans. When in fact, one of the things that I found in doing my research was it was this very interesting piece about the fact that fans were the ones who had grown increasingly violent over the course of the 70s. And that, you know, stadium uh, security and stadium architecture had been built up in order to essentially protect the game from the fans themselves because they had become increasingly rabid um, in the context of of live sporting events. Um, And yet all of the focus in this quote-unquote crisis of violence in terms of the NBA was directed at the players and not really at, you know, the fans and, and all of the, uh, you know, racist epithets that they were throwing at, at players and, you know, all of the heckling and whatnot. Uh, we're getting far afield here from the 70s, but to your point, I don't know if you still watch basketball, but uh, in the playoffs this year, a ball went, it was in Phoenix, the ball went into the stands, uh, and the owner, the Phoenix Suns, who's, I can see his face, but I can't remember his name. Sorry, owners, I don't know you guys by heart, although I give you all my money. Uh, he grabbed the ball, 
and uh, Jokic from the Detroit, uh, Denver Nuggets wanted the ball back. He, he tried to grab it back. The owner wouldn't let go. And Jokic ended up getting fined. The owner should be kicked out of the game. I don't care if he owns the stadium. That's interfering. That's if that had been a quote unquote ordinary fan, Teresa gone, and and maybe they would have taken away that if the person's a season ticket holder, they reserved the right not to sell you the season ticket anymore. So this, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's 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 about which violence gets policed and which which bad behavior quote unquote bad behavior gets policed and and who who it is really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And again, neither Teresa nor I are condoning violence. Not that it matters to say it is. <laughs> but we're just pointing out the double standard uh, that exists. Uh and uh all right, so going back to the seventies. Um you have a chapter on Kareem Abdul Jabbar and uh, he actually wrote, I don't know if you, uh, a, a book, uh, Giant Steps, where he talks about he punched Ken Benson's whole chapter on the whole, whole relationship between uh, white centers whose job it is to come in and just push black players and just like hack them. And, and finally, he couldn't take it anymore. And he punched this guy and then he got suspended or whatever, et cetera, and so forth. Anyway, uh, I've watched the evolution of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar over the years as a public figure when from the time he was a superstar at the pr prime of his game in the seventies to the time when he was sort of the, uh, the second star to magic on the champion eighties. And now in to now where he's a public intellectual, I subscribe to his newsletter. I, I, the man is brilliant. And I think he's some of the most insightful essays uh, that you can read about current society. Teresa, I can't think of any other athlete in our lifetime in my lifetime anyway, who has evolved into becoming a public intellectual. If you can think of some, feel free to throw one in. I can't think of any. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is truly unique in so many ways. Why don't you talk about Kareem uh, and the role he played in the 1970s uh, in, toward, in this transition of the NBA as an industry? Go ahead. Sure. Um, you know, I... Of course, growing up as a kid of the 80s, I was born in 75. So, you know, I encountered Kareem of the Lakers. Um, older Kareem, I didn't know the stuff that happened before. Of course, as a student, I learned about the revolt of the black athlete in the late 1960s, uh, you know, which culminated in an attempted, uh, well, it never actually happened, the boycott a planned boycott of the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, which then became, you know, evolved into a protest at the uh, Mexico City Olympics. Kareem was actually one of the few who actually stayed home and did not go to the Olympics um, as kind of one-man protest against uh, the racism of the sports system in the United States. So I knew about that history, but then the 70s was kind of like this black hole for me in terms of my knowledge of Kareem. I didn't know that he was essentially demonized in the first part of his career because people didn't know what to do with him. This was a guy who, you know, he was this huge, dominating star in the late 60s at UCLA, you know, uh, and he goes into the league in the NBA, and he's aloof 
with reporters. Um, he changes his name from Lou Alcindor to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and says, listen, um, I'm sick of leading a double life. Now you should call me this. Um, I've converted to Sunni Islam. You know, he's somebody who was very much an intellectual, even in those days, and whose favorite book was, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X. He came from a long line of folks with a deep connection to the African continent and who had experiences of being Black throughout the diaspora. Um, and he took all of that with him into the league, that kind of um, sense of himself as somebody who just, you know, wouldn't take anyone else's shit, <laughs> you know, to, to excuse my French, but, you know, who was just going to be and wasn't attempting to play to the insecurities of journalists, of white fans, to make folks feel comfortable that he wasn't threatening. And of course, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is this you know, towering figure, not just uh, metaphorically, but also in reality, right? This, this this super tall guy who had this presence about him, and he just was not um, about to, you know, uh, sanitize himself for for the NBA fan base. Um, and you know, as a consequence, he was demonized for that. Um, and, you know, speaking of the uh, the incidents of, of violence that he was involved in, in terms of fights and whatnot, one of the best finds uh, when I was doing research in the archives or the papers of Larry O'Brien was uh, a memo that Larry O'Brien wrote to himself about a meeting that he had with Kareem. And Kareem basically came into his office and said, look, you need to do something about these guys who are bumping me, who are grabbing me, who are elbowing me, who are punching me, and the refs do nothing about it. And if you don't do something about it, I'm just going to have to take matters into my own hands. And I was just like, that is quintessential Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from the early 70s, taking that attitude and sense of self coming out of you know, the civil rights movement and black power and really bringing it into the NBA um, and just being himself, being authentically himself. So let's think about this. Um, and by the way, that was a great riff about uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, truly a towering figure in American history, uh, or sports history. So let's think about what do you think was more frightening to the owners? the specter of the quote-unquote black thug or a man like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who was absolutely brilliant, smarter than they were, had read every book that they, well, most of them hadn't even read a book, so he was smarter than them and could place the sport and the relationship between white owners and black players into a larger historical context that goes all the way back to slavery. You know, who'd read Malcolm X, or at least Alex Haley's version of Malcolm X, and, and, uh, could just stand his ground to use their words uh 
in, a, in, a, in an intellectual debate. What's scarier, in your humble opinion, to the owners? I don't know if one was scarier than the other. They were scary for different reasons. So, you know, somebody like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, a thinker, somebody who understood how the business worked and could put it in this larger context of black labor exploitation, um, pairing him with somebody like Oscar Robertson. Of course, they played together on the Milwaukee Bucks back in the early 70s. Oscar Robertson was pretty scary <laughs> to the owners as the head of the NBPA, the National um, Basketball Players Association, which was the union representing the players, who was willing to stick his neck out and be the lead player, you know, the named player on the antitrust lawsuit against uh, the NBA, which served to block the merger between the ABA and the NBA, and eventually brought down the reserve clause. Those types of guys were extremely scary to them because they could rally the rest of the league. And, you know, one of the things that Oscar Robertson did so skillfully was he took the, uh, took the lessons that he learned from being and, and, you know, coming of age during the civil rights era and use those organizing tactics to democratize the MBPA, pull all the black players in, and get them to move like a united force as a counterweight to the power of the owners. So, I mean, they're scary from that point of view. I think the, the quote-unquote thuggish players are scary from the point of view of public relations, because at the end of the day, Sports is as much about what happens on the court as it is about the story that can be generated to sell to the public. And if that story is one that doesn't sit well with, you know, at that time, they're imagining white America, um, you know, turning away from basketball. Those players who were not fitting this version of respectability were a real liability for the NBA as it was trying to increase its fan base and make itself look like, hey, we are the family-friendly sport where you can bring your kids and you can all feel comfortable watching these really tall black young black men, you know, play basketball. Uh, by the way, do you follow the game, the current game? Do you, are you keeping up uh, on what's going on in the NBA today? You know, I don't follow it as closely as I used to, A, because I don't live in Toronto anymore and they were kind of like my team. Um, and I got a young kid. So by the end of the day, I'm like, I can't watch a full game. So I do watch all the highlights and whatnot. And I do follow all of the controversies. Well, I was going to um, ask you about course, John Morant uh, and the Memphis yeah, Clippers. Yeah. We've talked a lot about that on this show. Uh, and your thoughts, uh, John Morant. Uh, was suspended for the first 25 games of this upcoming season because uh, for the second time uh, he was caught uh, posing uh, in an Instagram video or TikTok, I can't remember which uh, outlet he used, uh, with a gun, holding a gun. And uh, so your thoughts on how everything, how they handle that and the difference between that and what would have gone down in the 70s. Well, A, I was first thinking, well, where's the NRA and all of this? <laughs> 
I was like, well, uh, whoa, nobody's, nobody's saying anything here. Um, but again, I don't agree with people randomly being able to carry firearms. I, I am not uh, in support of that. I think it's creating a lot of problems <laughs> in U.S. society. But it's interesting that he, again, much like in earlier periods of, of basketball history, John Morant has become the center of this moral panic. And it's all about, oh, here's this young thug. He doesn't, you know, he's not behaving respectably. He should be a role model to all the kids who watch him. He's ruining the sport, the image of the sport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I can't help but see a kind of replay of, or at least echoes of the double standards of the 70s. Now, guns being involved, a little more serious in my mind, but honestly, was he actually doing anything illegal? I don't know. Um, I don't know what the laws are where he <laughs> recorded that video and whatnot, but, um, you know, it's just interesting to me that we stay silent about other folks who pose with firearms um, and all of our energy is, you know, is, is caught up in hand wringing over oh my goodness. Kid Rock, this basketball player, uh, Kid Rock, Kid Rock. Uh, I don't know what he is, uh, alleged, alleged singer, uh, did a video of him machine gunning uh, Bud Light bottles of beer. I don't know if you saw this, Teresa, because he was protesting uh, the fact that uh, Bud Light uh, used a trans person uh, in some kind oh, of uh, commercial. Now, that's on. many, many layers to unpack there. Yeah. But. Wow, it's really deep, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, come on, Maggie, admit it. Kid Rock can't sing. Just just admit it among yourselves, okay? There's a double standard. How is it that Kid Rock got so successful, successful in a venue? He can't sing. Okay, just Sorry, talk about a double standard. Uh, and um, but anyway, so yeah, he's like proudly showing the gun, and his his career doesn't. And I'm with you. I'm like, I don't. Scary thing with a gun is a lot different than Kermit Washington accidentally punching out Rudy T. You know what I mean? But you're absolutely correct. There is a double standard. Um, and uh, so I'm going to close with this. And then uh, you get your response. I, uh, I'm an obsessive basketball fan. I follow basketball way too much. I'm, pick, I'm following enough basketball to pick up for you. Uh, for the basketball you're missing, I'm picking up for you, okay? Uh, so one of the things I do, follow all these uh, uh, interesting development uh, in basketball. A lot of the players who came of age, or roughly your age, uh, and are retired now, have our media entrepreneurs of their own with their own sites. They do their own shows, their own podcasts. Uh, they're getting, they're, they're controlling their voice. God bless every single one of them. I'm a huge fan of Kevin Garnett, who's roughly your age, uh, played for the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Boston Celtics, et cetera, so forth. Uh, he did this drop the other day, which I don't know if you saw, uh, but he, he, it was an excellent drop. And he was like talking about how the players today don't understand that the players 20 years ago, like, they took stands so that these people would have the, the money, the control, the access, or so show some love. I'm going to add that. KG was basically talking about his generation taking stands. Okay. <laughs> if you thought Kevin Garnett's generation took stands, 
uh, Spencer Haywood, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Norm Van Leer, my man, my brother, Norm Van Leer. They really, Oscar Robertson, they really took stand. So I urge everybody out there in the NBA, all you new draft choice, go get blackball and read blackball. You want to understand about whose backs you're standing on or whose shoulders you're standing on. You should really read this history. Uh, so that's my pitch for the day. And by the way, you guys can all afford it. Okay. I don't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't get it from the library. <laughs> Just buy a copy. <laughs> okay, there's nothing wrong with getting it from the library. Ladies and gentlemen, okay? No, no, no. No, I, I'm very yeah. much a fan of public libraries. So I'll just put that out there. Yeah. Before you get in trouble. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I really think it's a great book you wrote. Uh, I hope it's widely read uh, and made into a movie. Uh, although I'm not quite sure which part it would be uh, in there but re really fast to close just off topic you're you were a dancer for the toronto raptors do i have that correct just briefly yes, i was i i so <laughs> funnily enough i went to the audition the open audition i think it was back in 1996 i was a, a rising junior in college and you know, on a whim, went to the audition and made it on the team, much to my own surprise. Um, I had grown up dancing, um, you know, was a trained dancer. Um, but, you know, I got this really uh, behind the scenes look at what goes into putting on that great show that the NBA puts on, um, you know, when you go watch a game live. And I always tell people, there is nothing like going to watch a live game. You have to experience it at least once because it, it is an entire production. Um, and we're actually, we're all meeting up in August. All of the, we call ourselves the Raptors OGs. So the folks who were part of the organization from its inception in 1995 and the first few years of the late 90s, uh, we're, we're meeting up for a belated 25th anniversary um, celebration in a few weeks. So I'm, I'm really looking forward so to that. So you were a dancer when Isaiah Thomas was the general manager? I was. I was. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember those Raptors. Uh, and for the record, I always rooted against them because they were playing my beloved Bulls. I, I'm not going to pretend <laughs> I'm a Raptors fan, okay? Uh, I'm not going to do that. Do you still root for the Raptors even though you live in, what, Philly right now? Of uh, I'm in Baltimore. Baltimore Absolutely. Baltimore. Yeah, that's Canada's team. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I got nothing. I don't dislike the Raptors any more than any other team. Okay? So this is one of my pet peeves. Chicagoans who support other teams. I went to the Lakers game last year. There was like all these, like 10% of the stadium where right, what? you don't live in LA. Stop pretending, okay? So I don't dislike the Raptors any more than I dislike the Lakers or the Sixers. Uh, well, I don't think it's any team I dislike more than the Detroit Pistons and the Bucks, but whatever, you get the idea. Um, well, not the Bucks. I, I kind of like the Bucks because of Giannis. Uh, Teresa, thank you so much for coming on my show, and I urge everybody to check out Blackball. If you're a library user, feel free to check it out uh, of the library because that helps Teresa too. The more libraries that buy the book, the more it helps the author. 
and if you're an NBA player, just order it on Amazon or whatever, okay? Or Barnes & Noble or whatever. Don't be cheap, NBA players. Uh, so anyway, congratulations on a great book, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Uh, that's Teresa Brunsletter. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 